0: Please join me from Isaiah 45. I'll be reading verse 9 and then verses 24 and 25. Verse 9 Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, to, say He has no hands? He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Our Father in heaven, the creator and ruler of this whole world, the one in whom we trust for our very lives, please do open our ears today that we would hear. Please open our hearts that we would receive your truth. And uh, do give me the words to speak your truth, and not just be words, but words of life that would fall on the fertile soil of your people today, to have us all grow and to have that growth multiply to your glory. Lord, we don't want to be hearers only, but also doers, and we trust you by your grace to fulfill the promise made to us that you will work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And may it be so, for Christ's sake, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week, uh, Mr. Swab started his talk, uh, framing his uh, dialogue with the whole issue of street names, that when we move to a new city, we need to become acquainted with the local lingo to know the meaning behind those buildings and those streets. Uh, do we know who the Douglas is of Douglas County? Do we know who Mr. Dodge is of Dodge Street? And so on and so forth. I submit to you that in Christian circles, we fall prey to the same thing of assuming a certain amount of language. After you've lived in Omaha for a year or two, a couple dozen, you start to take for granted, oh yeah, yeah I knew once who Dodge was, uh, maybe I've forgotten, but I know who Douglas is and why it's Washington County, etc. cetera. Uh, there is a vocabulary that we talk of and we sort of converse about that at times we can take for granted, uh, words like I'm saved or have you heard the gospel or even justification by faith, which is a little more technical language. And so we do need to be reminded from time to time, lest we take for granted who the Dodge is, who the Douglas is, lest we take for granted what it means by the gospel, what it means by justification, by faith. Uh, Because if we move on from the milk of the word, as it uh, terms it in scripture, to the meat, we don't want to leave the milk behind. Once we get to the meat, it's composed of milk parts in an integral, unified type of way. Uh, So today, uh, in these verses here, especially at the end, I want to frame the whole chapter for us, but it's that last verse specifically I want to uh, investigate because it involves some words that are extraordinarily important. That if we gloss over, if we forget, if we think we knew, but may not be able to describe you know, really well if somebody oppressed us, we're missing out on a lot. And Even worse than that, if we've misunderstood them and misapplied them, misdefined them, miscommunicated them either to ourselves or to others around us, we can end up way off track and that is something we don't want to end up in. Uh, We need to then keep in mind the big picture as well as the details. Uh, The big picture of God's revelation of course is who God is, who we are as sinners who have offended him and the way of salvation. Uh, There's also lots of history and uh, moral code but again, we don't want to get stuck on this one street of Farnham and the moral code and forget that there's the bigger picture. But even when we're studying uh, the gospel over here on you know, Dodge, we don't want to forget that there is the moral code, that they're all linked together under that big map of Omaha or of God's word, of his revelation, so graciously put forth to us in these scriptures. So as we remember these street names and investigate the who, what behind them, let's uh, remember it's part of an integrated whole we don't want to get stuck on one part. That's how cults get started uh, in the worst case scenario. Uh, the best case scenario is just misinformation or a narrow walk or an immature walk. But let us be mature hearers and doers of the word as I prayed. So let me uh, summarize then. We'll go through quickly uh, the other portions of this chapter 45 from Isaiah and then get on to the last part. It's in those first four verses of the chapter that we read how God is going to use Cyrus, this is a pagan ruler, uh, to defeat other nations. And he's going to do that for his people's sake. As you see there, he's going to, he's speaking to Cyrus in verse 1. He's going to subdue nations also in verse 1. He's going to loose the armor of kings. He's going to open before him the double doors. So him being Cyrus, he's going to open the way, make his pathway straight to conquer these other nations so that, as it says there, the gates will not be shut. He's just going to run right over them. And history indeed proves that that happened. Uh, And then in verse 3, we see the why, or at least a purpose. I mean, ultimately, everything's for God's glory, right? But the maybe slightly narrower specific purpose here is mentioned in verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, And for Israel, my elect, that's why he's going to empower and help to succeed this man, Cyrus, who otherwise would be just going on his way, uh, glorifying himself, enriching himself. Uh, But whether uh, Cyrus knew it uh, real consciously and shared with it other people or not, uh, the the purpose of God in this is for his servant's sake, for his elect's sake. And I will touch on that again later as it comes into play in verse 25. Uh, But then in verses 5 to 10, the next little section, I see God making a chilling, and it really is chilling when you think about the implications, a call to submit to him because he is the one and only almighty God. We read there all these I am statements. I am the Lord, there is no other. I, and this is verse 7 now, form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. Um, I rain down you heavens from above. All this is by his power so clearly stated that there is no other besides him as well as all these things that he does. So uh, he sends both righteousness and ultimately these woes in verse 9 and on. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Again, it's a phrase that's touched on even in verse 24, that all who shall be ashamed who are incensed, that is angry or rebel against him. So God is the one and only and he's the sovereign ruler of the universe. Uh, verses 11 and 19, then, uh, we have uh, uh, showing the blessings that come to God's people as the nations around them are convicted and are convinced of the power of this one true holy God. <clears throat> the labor of, uh, of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, all these are going to come over to them. Uh, they shall come over in chains, they shall bow down to you, and so on and so forth. And providentially, really amazingly, providentially, uh, this all did come to pass. Just like, if you recall the story of the Exodus, where uh, the Pharaoh told the neighbors of the about-to-flee uh, Israelites to give them their jewelry. Well, in a similar case, it's recorded in Ezra, I quote here from four um, that uh, Cyrus told the neighbors of these Jews who were about to return from the exile to Help them with silver and gold, with goods and with livestock. So who are these people who otherwise would have been leaving behind the possession of Babylon, uh, would have been returning with what little they could carry. Instead, they're given all these riches of their captors, of their uh, enemy, in a sense, neighbors. So what a beautiful thing God accomplishes by his enemies. Two things. One, not only to send them back, to allow them safe passage, you know, permits for travel and all that, but also to give them the wealth of all these nations that God has said uh, will submit to Cyrus to uh, all come into the hands of his people as they would have obviously needed those resources to reestablish their communities there in Jerusalem once they returned. So good and gracious God. But uh, finally, we come to uh, the section here in which we're going to spend a little more time in the last part, verses 20 to 25, where we have a conversion of the Gentiles who are called, in fascinating words, escapees from the nations. Do we consider ourselves escapees from the nations? And we see a a multitude, a great multitude, drawn together before God. Uh, These escapees, uh, having previously followed uh, these impotent and powerless idols, speaks of uh, carved images uh, from wood. This is verse 20, uh, praying to a God that cannot save. So here they are having escaped from following these impotent, powerless idols. Um, They have no knowledge um, but what God declares to them. True knowledge is what he declares, as he says, and this knowledge is that he is a just God and a Savior, and there is none other besides them. Another instance there of him saying that in verse 21. And with that, we come to a conversation where God says that every knee is going to bow, if a tongue is going to take an oath. And what are they going to oath? What is it they're going to swear? It is this verse 24 and 25 that I read previously. Uh, specifically the part 25, that in the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Beautiful, beautiful words if we take each part of that for its full meaning and and have it in our hearts, which is what we're here today to accomplish, I hope. So looking then at the first part of that verse 25, in the Lord. um, This verse obviously is a culmination of what's gone before it. God has said who he is. So when we come here to verse 25 and he says, in the Lord, X, Y, and Z, we see what this kind of Lord God can do. He creates, he saves, uh, he rains down judgment, he gives righteousness and blessing. All of this is the one true God. Um, And I just point your attention again. I already read some of these verses, but no less than eight times does he say that there is no God besides me. Uh, I am the Lord and there is no other. So how many, much more clearly, by saying it 10 times, 12, 20, could he uh, make absolutely clear the fact that I am the Lord and there is no other. So when we get here to verse 25, we see a singularity, a uniqueness to this God, this Lord, who declares that he is the one in whom people are made just. And then also over 20 times, and I also read some of these for you, we saw these I statements. I will, I do, I form, I make, uh, I declare, I have named you. Uh, I will direct uh, the ways of this king, all this at his sovereign will, uh, deciding whom to raise up, whom to put down, whom to bless, whom to judge. This is what God does, an independent being. He doesn't have to act on reliance to somebody else. He doesn't have to submit his decisions to a council for vetting. Uh, He is uh, the one omnipotent ruler who does as he says, and ultimately that is a great blessing. Um, and he does mention these other false gods. It's not that he uh, ignores them entirely, uh, but notice what he says about them. Uh, in verse 20, he refers, as I quoted, to the carved wood image, ultimately a god that cannot save. And you know, It may seem foolish uh, for us here in the modern 21st century to think about people who would carve some little wood figurine and, and uh, think that it could save them, but it, it's not so foolish that millions, perhaps billions, of people around the world do exactly that. Whether they be Hindus or Buddhists or uh, different uh, pagan religions around the world, totaling hundreds of millions of people that are just, you know, they got Blackberries and iPods just like us, likely, but yet they are bowing down to carved wooden images uh, that they think will save, but God here clearly states will not save. They cannot save. It's not that they won't, it's that they cannot. They're totally unable to. They cannot save a God that cannot save, uh, cannot save and cannot justify. Ultimately, Uh, their followers will be in shame and in disgrace. Verses 17 and 24. Um, 17, he's promising you won't be, but by implication, he's saying those other people, those people who do follow the false gods, in verse 17, they will be ashamed or disgraced. Uh, In verse 24, it repeats the same thing. Those who are incensed against God, angry or rebel against him, they will be ashamed. Someday, they will be ashamed. They may be cocky, they may be proud, they may be self satisfied now, thinking that they're doing the right thing, uh, foolishly uh, satisfying their own you know, uh, numbed conscience, uh, as Gary spoke of earlier, uh, trying to quiet by keeping busy uh, that voice speaking in their head saying, Are you sure <laughs> that this idol is really going to accomplish what well, we hope it will? Uh, but someday they will be ashamed. Um, and I do think that this wording here, those who are incensed against him, speaks of a much more active. Uh, rebellion The people, whether they be bloggers today or politicians or writers of educational curriculum for the public schools who consciously are rebelling against God. They very consciously want to, um, and they would say, oh, I'm not some fool who raises up a a wooden idol, but they've got something else that they hope will save them, uh, their good works, their supposed clean living, etc. But ultimately, those who are angry against God will be ashamed. They'll be put to shame as they are humbled. Well, this um, fact that it's in the Lord, this sovereign, unique being who does all these things and who, from his position of power and glory, can look at these false idols and call them for what they are, um, this obviously carries over to the New Testament uh, and the teaching about Christ because it's in Christ that God uh, does this blessing, in, in Christ in which he restores relationship with his people and ultimately blesses them. Uh, so let me read for you the text of those verses I've noted in your outlines. First, Romans 6:23, "For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." And then in Romans 8:1, "There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus." And Second Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation; old things having passed away, behold, all things have become new." And finally, Ephesians 1.3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, paralleling to this in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Uh, Obviously, a point being made here that it's in Christ, those people who are in him, in which the fulfillment comes of these verses here. Um, We could get into an extended conversation of proving the deity of Christ, if you ever need to talk to a... Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, uh, but to leave that for another time, uh, at a minimum we see that uh, there is this connection that uh, Christ has the unique place in all of history of being the anointed, of being the Messiah, of being the one uh, that fulfills these words. And it's for those who are in Christ. As all these promises throughout the New Testament are made, it's those who are in Christ who receive these blessings. And I submit, really, it could be no other way Uh, If we are honest about the gravity and the seriousness of our sin, and if we're truly aware and give due credit to the incredible holiness and glory of God, there's no other way this could be accomplished. It's only when we minimize our own sin and think it's not such a big deal, it's not as bad as the other guy, and then we, we don't appreciate the pure holiness of the one true living God, that we can close that gap by our own works, by our own attempts to do... You know, again, better than the other guy or not as bad as I was doing last week. Uh, So if we're honest, though, about how holy he is and how sinful we are, we see how completely vast that gulf is. And again, no other way could that gulf be closed than by the perfect, complete work of Christ, the God-man sent uh, to earth to live a sinless life and to uh, have perfect obedience to his Father. Um, So because of the tragicness and the seriousness of our sin and that awesome holiness of God, uh, justification could only happen by uh, the anointed one, the Lord uh, in Christ. So praise be to God for his grace and his mercy and his wisdom uh, with this divine plan, ultimately on our behalf, those who are are in Christ. Well, then we do move on to the next phrase here. So who are the recipients of this grace? Already given it away. It's those in Christ. And and who is this? Uh, In our text, it's labeled, the descendants of Israel. Uh, and there's two uh, points I want to draw out here. One is that this descendants of Israel is a community of people. It's not uh, listed here as a singular, autonomous individual. And also that there is a, a continuity as opposed to a disunity of the people of God throughout history implied. Uh, speaking to the first one, it's easy uh, to think that there's just a, a personal, a singular uh, relationship. With God, And, of course, there is that dimension. don't want to deny that because each of us individually will stand before a holy God uh, and be judged, standing at his throne and answering for our good works. So there is a singular level. But that does not exclude the fact that there is a community level. There is a, a corporate community dimension, um, both in the bad and in the good. Starting with the bad, of course, we know that all are united under Adam as our covenant head, and thus we died in sin. As Romans 5.12 puts it, thus one man, referring to Adam through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. A very clear statement of the fact that we were united under a covenant head, Adam. Uh, And then in 1 Corinthians 15.22, the first part of that verse is saying, again, extraordinarily clearly, uh, for all who are honest about it, in Adam all die. Uh, But on the flip side of that, the communal relationship of salvation and of justification here. Uh, to complete or to read the, the full of verse 1522, it says at the beginning, in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So he is our covenant head of the elect, uh, whether it be 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, last week or next month, uh, there is that unity of God's people in the elect under Christ. Uh, Christ is the covenant head of, his, of the redeemed Um, since he is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. He is the seed of the promises, uh, Paul explains it. So insofar as we are in Christ, we are part of that promise. We are part of the seed and heirs according to those beautiful promises. Well, moving to that uh, and to further explain the continuity and disunity uh, to show the continuity uh, is the fact that the promises are called uh, to the descendants of Israel. Uh, and this makes sense, you know, to read about Israel. You know, how many hundreds of times is Israel mentioned in the prophets and throughout the Old Testament? Uh, but we must look to see and be honest about seeing uh, that connection in the New Testament as well. And I have to be intellectually honest enough to say that there is no, you know, phrase you can look up in a, a concordance that says Christians are the descendants of Israel. It's not as simple as that. But when we do uh, the work and uh, uh, hopefully not to convince the choir of something you already know, but to to further give you that ammunition by writing it on paper with Galatians 16 and 29 Uh, and to be reminded of this Old Testament history that uh, Abraham was the father of two sons. One was blessed with the part of the promise. One was not. And the one who was, Isaac, had two sons. One of them was part of the promise. One was not. uh, That one who was being Jacob. And all of the blessing of those 12 tribes throughout history uh, certainly a cursing mixed in with the individuals there. But how many times is it mentioned in Scripture that uh, through Abraham the promises will come? But then in Galatians with those verses, we see that uh, only one person out of all humanity, Paul says, is the real meaning of the seed, uh, that the seed being Christ, which seems really narrow. I mean, what do, good does that do us if Christ lived a sinless life and uh, was not... Uh, found faulty in any way whatsoever. So he's the successful seed of the the covenant and the promises to Abraham. Well, then we get back to the broadness of those who are in him. So, yes, the singularity of Christ, the person, but the immense broadness, millions of people throughout history, uh, people from every tribe and nation, every tongue, as it says here, is going to confess before him. uh, That is the beautiful broadness of the seed of Abraham uh, coming down through Isaac and Jacob. And so we can trust with full faith to say that it's the descendants of Israel, uh, and that including us, uh, that there is one God, that there is one Christ and one people of God united in Christ that receive the blessings of those promises to the seed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, moving then on to uh, who it is that shall be justified. We've established uh, the one God in whom justification happens, uh, to whom it happens, uh, but let us look then at what this work is that's done. Uh, there's numerous theological controversies uh, that have been brewing and uh, trying to be uh, uh, quelled over the last decade or so within even conservative churches about justifications, justification. So this is, I mean, a complicated issue for those who make it such. Uh, and to be aware of the dialogue is good. There's a lot of intricate reading you could do about different controversies, uh, whether it's something, you know, we're made righteous or do we become righteous, or is it a declarative act? Is it judicial? Or is that something that, you know, 16th century uh, former lawyers uh, came up with and imposed on the scriptures? Uh, But as the reading there we did uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 11, Section 1, Uh, makes it very clear. And I think they're very uh, faithful to the scriptures. uh, uh, Very godly men who spend a lot of time, uh, many collective hours distilling the truths of scripture down to a few uh, really ripe words. Uh, So let us harvest from that ripeness of their work and, and explore in some detail, certainly not exhaustive detail, but explore in some detail what this work is, this work of justification that the Lord achieves accomplishes fully in uh, his chosen people, those descendants of Israel. And to summarize, you have in your worship programs the whole statement of the confession, but in brief, the points I'm going to address to say, in justification, God pardons sins and accepts the person as righteous for Christ's sake alone, this by faith and this faith being a gracious gift. So let's look at those parts. First, in justification, God, the Lord, pardons sins. As Gary so clearly stated, each of us carries a weight, If we're honest to see, it's crushing. It's a burden that we cannot carry. Um, And if we attempt to carry it, we become ashamed and just rubbed into the ground as if under somebody's heel. Uh, We can't explain it away. We can't hide it. Uh, An omniscient, all-seeing God sees those sins. Whether we think they're small or great doesn't make a difference. Uh, Add it up. Uh, whether it's you know, 100 minus points or a million minus points, there's still minus points, and he sees them. We can't hide them, and it's a weight we cannot carry. Uh, instead of trying to carry it, we hear the promise, uh, another chapter of Isaiah, reading here from Isaiah 53, 11. He, as Christ, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant, again speaking of Christ, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So the iniquities that we can't bear because it is a crushing load, a load that, you know, how more honestly can we say it? It's like when we were um, coming back from Colorado on our vacation, we saw a uh, semi that had run off the road on a sharp turn and just got, you know, uh, pallets full of DVD players stretched out over the highway. And so it was a load it could not carry under the gravity of that turn. It's impossible. As hard as he probably tried to break, to steer real gently... It's impossible to maneuver the load of sin on the twisted highway of life. It, uh, the, rubbers, the, the DVD players are going to meet the road at some point. And it's only in Christ that our iniquities can be borne. And uh, that, of course, being done, as the verse says, by God's righteous servant, the Messiah, on our behalf. Well, with that sin carried away by Christ and his uh, obedience imputed to us, We are accounted and accepted as righteous, as the confession says. And to clarify that word, impute. uh, Impute is to reckon against. Um, We have a checking account. We write a check. uh, Those funds, you know, $20 paid to the order of so-and-so, are imputed. They're reckoned against. They're uh, credited, debited to our checking account. Um, So when we have sins, they're on our account. But when they're imputed to Christ, they're put onto him. And again, as I said, there's no other way could they actually be taken away than by a sinless person, the God-man Christ. Otherwise, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, the the bank account would have run dry. Um, If you ever talk to Jehovah's Witness, there was the doctrine of 144,000 were the elect that were going to be saved. So you ask them, well, at what point in history were there 144,001 righteous Jehovah's Witnesses? You know, isn't time run out, you know? And they came up with some manipulation of their doctrine to then sort of perpetuate it into the future. But uh, if it wasn't for the uh, infinite sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the bank account would have been dry and we'd be in deep trouble. But it is through the infinite sacrifice of Christ that there is a, a, a treasure of merit beyond belief that we can be uh, trusting in uh, for ours, sin, for our children's, for the future generations until his coming in the uh, full uh, completion and glorification, renovation of this earth. So again, it has to be through a sinless man, uh, God Himself uh, coming to earth, that that's done. Uh, and let me read then uh, th- from two more verses in Romans uh, to remind us about uh, this imputation. From Romans four eight, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. I mean, talk about blessing of all blessings. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. And then in Romans 4, 6, blessed is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, and apart from works, a work that we could never do. Indeed, these are blessings beyond what we could ever ask or think. Truly, our God is a loving God, a gracious God to have given us this gift, something we could never work for, but a blessing beyond all measure. And then we see uh, that this is for Christ's sake alone, for no other uh, and this, this love, this unique love, isn't extended to everybody, uh, as was mentioned as he uh, blessed the table for us. Uh, this blessing is only communicated to those to whom he makes a definite work of bringing them into this family. It's not just a broad, let me lay it out there and, and see if you like it and decide to take it home for yourselves. Uh, as Malachi 1, uh, 2 to 2-3, and quoted again in Romans 9, says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. There is a uniqueness and a definiteness, not a generality and a take it or leave it kind of attitude to this justification that God has accomplished. Um, It's only for those who have faith in the work of Christ and uh, that work being on their behalf. Uh, It speaks in James of uh, the demons believing they have faith But what good does it do them? They know the facts. They know that there's one God. They know that God is holy. Uh, They know that people sin. They probably know that they've sinned too. Uh, But that doesn't do them any good because that is not applied to their lives. Um, And uh, by way of apologetics here, I think it's important to see that we cannot prove uh, justification apart from the scriptures. And you may be a little concerned, what do you mean you can't prove it? Um, I would say you can prove that there was, you know, Jesus lived, we can prove from historical documents, etc., that he lived a sinless life. We can prove that he was resurrected, there was an empty tomb, and we can prove in order to debunk the myths about the body being stolen, etc. But proving those facts means nothing when it comes to the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. What kind of physical evidence could there be for a substitutionary atonement? It's only through uh, divine revelation uh, handed down to us through the scriptures, that we can know this. And, you know, It's an invisible thing. This transaction uh, in heaven uh, is something we cannot see. So when somebody says to you and says, oh, I you know, proved behind a shadow of a doubt, or even when an atheist comes to you and says, you, know, you can't prove uh, your salvation. You know, in a sense, they're right. You cannot go find some little thing in the corner in some cave and Uh, Israel that says substitutionary atonement happened, even though I can't see it, it's proven. Uh, We have to have the ground of our faith being God's revelation. That's where the critical nature of scripturalism, trusting in the scriptures uh, as God's revelation, that uh, is the ground of our truth as handed down through the church through these generations. And uh, of course, you know, when somebody says, I just don't believe it, you say, you're not believing God. God says he's not a liar. God says he tells the truth. Even in this chapter, he says, I tell the truth. I declare true knowledge. That true knowledge is things that we would not know any other way. So let us be thankful for this divine revelation and not minimize it uh, alongside uh, the evidence given to us by the archaeologists. Well, finally, then, we come to uh, the gift nature, uh, that this uh, justification by faith, this faith is a gift of God, a gracious gift. So let me read again from Romans 4, 6. The man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works is blessed. a Blessed, a tremendous gift. Uh, And later in that letter to the Romans, Paul makes the point that the gift nature (coughs) and uh, working are diametrical opposites. They cannot be mingled. If it's a gift, (coughs) it can't be uh, worked for. And if it's worked for, it cannot be a gift. So uh, when it's stated to be a gift in Ephesians and, and here blessings are gifts, we don't work for blessings. We know that it cannot be worked for. As much as we try, as much as we think we might be deserving on a particularly good day uh, to be deserving of his blessings, we did not work for it uh, as the work of Christ uh, that accomplished it on our behalf. And let us say, uh, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 15, Thanks be to God. this indescribable gift. A gift we can't even imagine how extraordinary it is because uh, we can't see hell. We don't know how bad it would be without it. But thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And finally, uh, having been benefactors of this justification, uh, being justified, we shall glory. The obvious question is, in what? In what? In whom do we glory? And hopefully the answer is clear. Uh, we glory in the work of Christ, which we have faith which be, uh, in, which we have faith to be given to us uh, by God's free mercy. Um, and this clearly shows the, to whom: in Christ, in the Lord, in His wise counsel, His goodness, His kindness, uh, His love towards His people, His love towards His Son, uh, then given to us on His behalf. And let me then quote from you for you uh, three verses that say this so clearly from Jeremiah nine, verse twenty-four. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. That's whom we can glory in, the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians uh, 1.31, which is a a very close parallel passage to 2 Corinthians 10.17. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that is, as it is written, and he quotes from Jeremiah 9, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And again, for a tie-in, proving a Christ divine nature, reading also from Romans 15, 17, Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ. So we glory in Christ every time we give him thanks for this indescribable gift. Every time we're honest enough to repent of our sins and daily needing to do so. Every time we share with a friend and a neighbor, Uh, the goodness, uh, the good news, the truly good news of the gospel uh, that rescues us from our sin and point the way to God. It was God. It was the Lord in Christ, not me. That is how we can glory in Christ, give credit to him, not to man, Uh, because that's to whom it is due. We must. And, um, And I know if I was to spend time to give you my personal testimony, I can share with you for sure. And I know most of us could. Well, all of us should be able to, if we thought about it. Maybe you're too young, you were saved, you can't remember. but uh, it will keep on coming up, to try and take credit, even for a little bit, to be thinking, "I'm not as bad as the other guy. At least you know I had enough good sense uh, to stay away from that train wreck that took out uh, my coworker. Uh, but no, it's not because we're so smart and clever uh, that we got on board soon enough. That's because of God's great mercy. And uh, we must uh, remind ourselves, keep ever before our eyes, but for the grace of God, go we. Uh, when my family was out on vacation, um, you're just seeing the billboards out on the road, watching TV in people's houses, uh, seeing some of the difficult situations our friends and family are in. It's easy to say, oh, that's really glad I'm not there, uh, but to always be thinking, uh, but for the grace of God, go we. If it wasn't for his grace in uh, justifying us and the effectual calling prior to that, That was mentioned earlier. If not for uh, his grace in continuing to uphold us in the faith to keep us from falling away, we most certainly would be like him. So, but for the grace of God, go we. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. But for God's grace, such were some of us. And he speaks there of fornicators, of idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, those who are covetous, drunkards, revilers. Such were some of us. If we're honest enough to see our hearts and our actions, not just our hearts, but our actions. But of course, he continues in those verses in 1 Corinthians 6. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. That should be chilling to us to think that the triune God interceding on our behalf. And who are we for him to do that? So people of God encourage you to not trick yourselves or deceive yourselves into thinking that you were washed by uh, some good common sense because you had a depraved mind uh, and you enjoyed your sins. You merely disliked the consequences prior to being saved. Also, uh, don't be uh, deceived into thinking that you were sanctified by your own attempts at living a moral life because, as was prayed earlier in one of our prayers, your best works were as filthy rags. They did nothing. They could accomplish nothing. Also, uh, don't be uh, self-deceived in thinking that you were justified by telling God, oh, "I'm not so bad after all. You know, you're, a, you're a good God, right? You'd be nice to me." Uh, no. He who violates one part of the law is guilty of the whole thing. We must not be deceived. Instead, let us glory in the one true God who washed us, who sanctified us, who justified us, and with saints of old, let us glory in the risen Lord. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, I do thank you for uh, your scriptures, uh, which reveal to us uh, these truths, apart from which we would be blind, uh, groping about in uh, nature for that bit of your revelation that only condemns us. But Lord, these are uh, plain and hard truths. Uh, These truths of woes, to those who strive against you and rebel against you and ultimately are ashamed. But we are so thankful for the sweet truths that kindle great joy in the hearts of your people, such as the peace that comes from being justified and the joy that comes from giving you glory. Uh, Your scriptures make it plainly true that you rule in the lives of men, whether they are saved or not, whether they're King Cyrus's or Jacob's. Oh, God, may there not be a single descendant of Cyrus in this room. May instead we all be descendants of Jacob. Uh, May we be like him who are declared righteous, justified by the blood of your son, justified freely by your mercy and able to stand by faith. Thank you, God. Thank you in the same uh, powerful name of your precious son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us uh, respond.